This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Blog Talk Radio. Fan, Met Fan Rich, known in real life as Rich Sparago. And you are listening to a special edition of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Uh, I say special because uh, this, this is where we'll start after I introduce my co conspirators. To me, it's always special when baseball starts again. Um, today was spring training games. You know, there are some on TV. Hopefully, everybody had a chance to watch a little bit. We'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about something very near and dear to my heart as we go through the podcast. We'll talk a bit about the 73 Mets at the end and our memories of of that season and that really wonderful team. And we'll reflect on that a little bit. But before we jump into all of that, let me bring on my two co-conspirators in the Metsian podcast. Let's see, where do I want to go first? Well, let's start in the borough of Brooklyn, uh, because I know that's where he is. I never know where our other guy is. So we'll start here. Mike LaCollin. Mike, um, how is the borough of Brooklyn, and how are you doing tonight? The borough of Brooklyn needs a bath with all this melting <laughs> snow. Uh, we, need, we need a cleanup job. Let's just say that. But otherwise, I am well. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going back to work I'm off of my mandated quarantine only because of contact tracing from somebody at work. I'm clear. My test came back negative. So back to normal tomorrow. Awesome news. Um, yeah, I, I had a contact tracing back in January. I had to, you know, get tested and all that. So I'm glad to hear that you're clear and life will resume for you. And life's resuming, as we talked about, for baseball teams, right? And we'll talk more about that. Um, and then I'll go to uh, the person Mike likes to dub as the CEO of Podcasting Operations, Mr. Sam Maxwell, the elusive <laughs> Sam Maxwell, because sometimes he's in a borough, sometimes He's upstate New York. So, Sam, where do we find you tonight, and how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you all. Uh, baseball is in the air. I am in the heart of the tri-state, Manhattan, and I'm ready to talk some Mets baseball and the game of baseball itself. It, it seems like, you know, it, it came and went so quickly last year. So it's going to be it, – it's nice that the – so far it seems like, you know, the routine is beginning and – uh, it looks like we might be turn, turning a corner, so hopefully we can actually get this thing off the ground in a relatively normal fashion. To God's ears, my friend. So let's start. Let's start with something we've already teased out a little bit. Today was the first day of spring training games, and, and yes, um, <laughs> it happened, and that's great. They look different. Um, I actually watched parts of four games today. 
uh, because they get the uh, MLB package. They, they show the spring training games um, as well. So I actually tuned into four games, and all four games were seven-inning games. And as we know, that is an option that teams have this year. If both managers agree, they could play seven-inning games. And they have the other ridiculous rule that if a pitcher has thrown 20 pitches, the defensive team can say, you know, mom needs me home for dinner. We have to go home now. And they can call the inning off, which I think is insane. Um, but so it was nice to watch the games. Uh, nice to baseball on TV. Mets uh, kick off their Grapefruit League season tomorrow, actually. One of very few teams that did not play today. And the Mets' first game on TV, for those who are interested or wondering about such things, the Mets' first game on TV will be Tuesday at one o'clock. So my question to both of you, the, the first day of spring training games is always important to me. I don't care who's playing because it means that four months or so, whatever the exact number is, uh, four, four and a half months, whatever it might be that particular year of no baseball, those, that time is over. It's time to watch some games. Um, I know with spring training games, you know, you get excited for them to start. Then when they're on, you watch an inning or two and it becomes background, but it doesn't matter. Our old friend is back. So I, I'll throw that in. And then my, my question to both of you will be the same. Did you get a chance to watch any of the games today? And secondly, did you have any particular feelings about seeing fans in the stands, albeit a limited number? So let's start there. Mike, I'm going to ask you the question to reflect upon today in two ways. Was it weird with the seven inning games? I'm sure it was. And just watching it with limited fans, was that like, uh, it's more like 2020 or for you, was that a sign of hope? Weird. Uh, everything's been weird for over a year now. So I, I, for as much as my head is about to explode with all these rules changes, uh, I, I'm, I'm dealing with it because of this pandemic and because things do indeed need to be different. Uh, once the collective bargaining agreement comes to a resolution in December next season, I'm going to be looking for a lot more normalcy. So I'm not going to let too much throw me off kilter this season, just like last season. As far as the fans and seeing some of them and seeing people back in the park, you know, we've been somewhat conditioned, if only slightly from football leading into spring training. Uh, Suddenly basketball and hockey are starting to let limited fans into their arenas. So, you know, it's going to be a slow trickle. None of us have ever experienced this before. So I would just tell everyone, you know, pay attention, see what's going on, and make note of it because this is history in the making one in one form or another. Uh, but it's weird, you know, and I hope moving forward uh, we, we don't advance into the season overly confident. You know, let's be practical about this. Let's do this smartly. Let's take uh, necessary precautions and move forward. And hopefully at some point we'll all be together. Well said, Sam, did you get a chance to watch games? And if you, even if you did not um, just thinking about seven inning games, they could, I didn't see an inning actually stop because of 20 pitches, but seven inning games, limited fans in the stands. So is your reaction more, ah, geez, thank you. Baseball's back. Or is it, sort of like a weird kind of like a weird going back to your old neighborhood, but everything is different. Well, that's sometimes what Manhattan feels like uh, unto itself, uh, especially with that one Manhattan Plaza towering over Manhattan bridge. But I digress. My question for you before I answer is uh, are all spring training games going to be seven innings from now on? 
No, no. Uh, after the middle of March, I think it's the 13th or 14th, they will be nine-inning games. And I okay. believe until the 14th of March, they can be nine-inning games unless the managers agree to do seven-inning games prior to the start of the game. Well, I'm, I, you know, I wouldn't really have a problem with just navigating. I, I mean, uh, you know, other than, I guess, because basically spring training sometimes just – it comes down to those situations that come up and you're practicing for them. You're not actually looking necessarily to win the game in the fourth inning, but you, you are trying to move a runner over or you're trying to, to figure out how to hit and run and yada, 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 all these little things. Uh, so I don't think that's going to be completely affected by, you know, that the managers agreeing on, you know, more often basis before that deadline uh, that it's only going to be a seven inning game. I don't think, you know, I, I, I just, that doesn't concern me all that much. And I, <laughs> excuse me, I wasn't able to watch any games today. And, you know, I, I, I can imagine, I mean, it, it, it was, it felt like, you know, at some of the playoffs had some fans in there when I uh, was watching games and highlights and, you know, you saw everybody with masks on, and sometimes you saw everybody, you know, huddled and gathered a little bit more than you would expect. But, you know, I think that's just bound to happen in this situation, and you got to be cognizant of that sort of thing, uh, that even though, like, there's a difference, and that, that that's going to be why the protocol is so important, because, you know, 25% capacity huddled all together doesn't make any sense, obviously. So uh, you you got to go through it. I'm, I'll tell you one thing. However, it, it, it seems like it's going to be going. As soon as I can be in there with a ticket, I'm, I'm going to be there no matter what the capacity is. So, you know, you just tell me that I can finally go back to City Field and see some Mets baseball in person, then I'm a happy guy. Uh, so one way or another, like, uh, you know, I echo what Mike said, let's do this smartly so we can all win. Well, thank you for the nice segue to the next thing I wanted to get to. I wanted to get to capacity at ball games, and, and then very specifically for the two of you, what would make you comfortable going? And the reason I asked that, I may have mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that um, I took a survey, you know, I, I guess they have my name about, and it was all these questions about what would it take you to, to be comfortable going to a game. It took about 10 minutes, a lot of questions. So, I'm going to ask you a couple of things. I'll, I'll, I'll be a little specific with the questions that popped out to me. So they asked for, I'll make it easy. I'll do three. They asked for the capacity number. So, and they gave options of like 10%, 50%, 75%. So uh, Sam, I'll start with you here. Just tell me, you know, do you have a capacity limited mind or, and if you do, what would it be? That's number one. Number two would be, would staggered, entry and exit times be important to you in number two and number three was around food and beverage um would you want to see only packaged food and beverage like you know not like hot dogs on on the grill there uh pre-packaged items and would you would you have certain restrictions in mind like i don't believe we should be going to the stand because that makes people congregate only vendor brought food that's pre-packaged so would you have food and beverage limitations so it's three questions right capacity what would make you comfortable do you think that staggered entry and exit times would be important and anything about food and beverage Ooh, 
you know, I, I think as long as I'm able to see a game, I'm going to go with whatever. It, none, none of that, none of that stuff. I'm going to let everybody else be concerned about the way this entire thing takes shape. You know, I, I, other than the fact that like you probably have less healthy options if, if you're only doing vendoring, um, <laughs> That that that's my number one concern, I guess, just because like once you realize what's in a hot dog, no matter what the tradition <laughs> is, it, you, you realize maybe I should probably move on, you know. At least like even 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 if you go with like a sausage with pepper and onion, you know the way they make sausage. And anyway, I'm I'm digressing and going into uh, an entire other podcast conversation about the way food is made in America, um, but that that is part of the concern when we're we're talking about the way this virus has interacted with this population, the way the food is prepared and, and made is a big reason why we're in the predicament we are today. So it is something to be concerned about. Uh, but I will go back to the ballpark on whatever anybody else is comfortable with, basically. I will adapt accordingly. That is interesting. People have very, very definite opinions on that. Mike, how about yourself? Everybody has to make their own decision. Uh, you know, those are good good questions that were asked. There's a lot of staff involved in feeding people at a stadium. Uh, what kind of protocol are they going to be going through? What kind of testing are they going to be going through? And, and, and you know, nobody has control command and control over what people do in the privacy of their own home or in their neighborhood when they're not working. It's a lot of risk, a lot of variables involved here. Make your own decisions. Me personally, I'm in no rush to go uh, see a game in person this year. Uh, once they open up maybe Coney Allen and I could see a Cyclones game, I might do that only because it's very local to me and convenient. But uh, I, I don't need to do that just yet, Rich. I really don't. I can wait. I can wait out another year. I'm patient. Maybe 2021 is my time. Uh, I'm more interested in road tripping. And what do I mean by that? Getting in my car, driving far, seeing multiple games, sightseeing, finding restaurants, and things like that. And I can't do that yet. So I'll bide my time. I'll bide my time. Again, I just hope that people go about this smartly. But there's a lot of concerns there insofar as staffing, uh, and and necessary and unnecessary personnel. I understand that, you know, people are lacking for jobs and income, and, uh, you know, a great many people are struggling. And sure, you would like to see these people work and earn money, but at the same time, uh, somehow, some way, you know, uh, maybe a compromise can be reached. Yeah. You know, it's what I see from a lot of people, on Twitter is people are desperate to go to a game. Like, you know, Mike, your approach of I'm in no particular rush. I've heard that from people. Some people in my season ticket holding group say that. Um, but I think a lot of people are like, Oh my, I've heard people put on, I've seen people put on Twitter. I'll cry when I walk into city field for the first time. It's been so long. I'm going to be so happy. I can't wait to go, you know, that kind of thing. Then there's the other reaction like yours, which is when I feel the time is right, I'll go I'm in a particular rush. It's interesting. You know, when I answer those questions, just my thought was I don't care about a percentage capacity. I do think some kind of social distancing would be necessary. Like I don't want people 
in front of me, behind me, and on both sides. I like to have a little bit of space in all those directions. And I'm sure other people feel the same way. So that's the first thing. But to me, the most important thing was the staggered entry and exit times. Because if you're in an outdoor environment and you have some space and you other people, and hopefully by the middle of the spring-ish, a lot of us will be vaccinated, you probably are in decent shape there. But the thing is, if you're going to be climbing up somebody's back, you know, going in a non-open space down those, down those stairwells, that's the problem as far as I'm concerned. So I, to me, that was my number one factor was staggered entry and exit times. I don't give a damn about food. I don't go to the game for the food and, or the beer. I go to the game to watch the game. Anyway, um, interesting discussion. And it's now probably time to move to the New York Mets, the team that we're here to talk about. And by the way, I should add that tonight, John Struble of Mets Rewind was supposed to join us. And we regret to say that John informed us about a little bit ago that he's unable tonight. And we apologize for that. John is unable to make it. But as you know, well, he's been on this podcast before. We will have him back on at some point. So moving to the New York Mets and the team, you know, as I see it, and uh, Mike, I'll start with you on this one. The Mets have a lot of talent. Clearly, the Pocota system thinks so. They have the Mets winning 95 games, I think 96 actually, and winning the division by 10 games. So the Mets have a lot of talent. We'll start with a general question. I think that the issue in spring training isn't so much do they have the talent to win, can they win. I think it's yes across the board to all that stuff. I think what they're trying to figure out is, and we'll get into specifics in a moment, how all these pieces may fit together. Is that how you see spring training, Mike, or or do you think that there are certain things that they're trying to figure out? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, Rich. Uh, First of all, the Dakota means nothing to me. Uh, It really doesn't. But insofar as spring training, yeah, they got a couple of positions that they're trying to shoehorn at least eight players into, so they need the next month to get this all straightened out. Uh, Third base, second base, left field, even center field. Uh, A lot of confusion there, Uh, a lot of bodies, a lot of combinations, a lot of uh, options, Rich. So, yeah, they need these next uh, 30 days or so to figure out their plan heading into the season. This way they can reconcile their active roster and who's going to start at Syracuse. So interesting combinations here. I think they're going to flirt uh, in some form or fashion with a, a straight platoon and see if they can lean one way or another. You know, at third base, we know the body's involved, but really the options boil down to do you want offense or do you want defense? Uh, one is one, one is a lefty, one is a righty. You know where I'm going. So, strangely enough, Rich, it seems like we've had this conversation in past seasons. The only difference being that at least the pieces are somewhat more talented uh, than in previous seasons in spring trainings. But here we are. We're still effectively trying to fit round pegs and square holes and vice versa. Uh, so, somehow, some way. We need to get this figured out. And, you know, and I was smiling when you were talking, Mike, and, and the, the analogy that came up was 2013 in my head when the Mets didn't have an outfield. Remember when Sandy Alderson at the baseball writers dinner in January before the 2013 season said outfield, what outfield? I don't have an outfield. Um, yeah. It's a much different problem. You know, 
you've got good players that don't necessarily fit together, and we're going to get into specifics in a moment. So, Sam, your general thoughts on spring training. Do you see the Mets as lacking in talent somewhere, or is it more a matter of sorting things out and, and trying to make the pieces that they have somehow fit together? No, I don't think that they really lack in talent. Um, I think that, again, even if it didn't go in terms of, like, the number one pieces, number the, the type A talent that was on the free agent market, just because it didn't go exactly as some of the fans wanted it to be. Um, like, this team had talent before you added Francisco Lindor. Uh, before you added uh, Brad, uh, what was Jesus? Uh, excuse me, Trevor. Trevor May. Pardon me. Um, you know, I, it, it Freudian slips, and so many fans wanted Brad Hand. Um, but I, I still think that this is a team that went assembled, and and now I think it probably is just up to seeing. I mean, because this there was already a camaraderie with some of these pieces like J.D. Davis and Dominic Smith and Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil. And you have the number one pitcher in baseball and the number one pitcher in a generation. Um, so I, 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 I just think that it is going to be interesting to see the way, how often you depend on Kevin Pillar, how often you depend on Brandon Nemo, uh, all, all of these machinations, the way it comes to fruition. Um, and I, a lot of that, will be explored. Uh, there might be some names that we didn't even realize we were going to see that might come uh, to the foreground. So I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how now all of this takes shape as a new environment, you know, takes shape itself when it comes to, um, you know, the fact that there was a lot of toxic, you know, the Mets were always a talented team. And, you know, you kind of understood what Jeff, Jeff Wilpon was going for with the underdog element. They always had a chance to run with the beast. They, they gave a lot of the teams that were good a run for their money all of the years that they've failed. But, you know, there was just something missing when it came to what the Wilpons put together as just the general airspace that was surrounding the Mets. So I'm just looking forward to seeing the way this takes shape now that there's just such a better vibe out there, regardless of what the, the outrage culture wants to scream about this off season. Good point. So, so let's get a little more specific. Um, and let's talk about, I think we're, we're aligned that it's really not about trying to find talent. You know, we're not talking about Colin Cowgill, you know, starting center fielder on opening day. We're not in that situation like 2013. Um, l- let's talk about putting some of these talented players, try to make sense of the whole thing. As we know, I'll go right here, Mike, you know, you and I are, are incredibly bonded on this point. As far as I'm concerned, defense is very important in baseball, like uber important. And so one of the pieces of fallout of the way the Mets have put this roster together is to get the bats in the lineup, which is a noble objective. They have to sacrifice defense a lot. I'm going to give you a couple of specifics. So going with the lineup that we think they will put on the field on opening day, let's look at some defensive metrics here. 
Um, outs above average is my new favorite defensive stat. It is exactly what it says it is. So it's where, how did this player do against, you know, plays that he, he should have made, how many outs did he either save the team or cost the team, right? It's on Baseball Savant, if anybody's interested and doesn't know where to find it. So Pete Alonzo, minus three outs above average at first base. J.D. Davis, minus three outs above average at third base. Dom Smith, minus four outs above average in left field. Brandon Nimmo, minus four outs above average in center field. Okay? I'm not a mathematician, but that's four out of eight positions where the Mets are woefully defensively challenged. I'm going to add this in, and Sam, I'll ask you to comment. So the team is defensively challenged if that's the team they put out there. And, yes, I know they might put Pilar in center or Almore or Leighton games. We'll get to that later. Their bottom line, if this is the team that they're going to go with, they're going to be defensively challenged. Add in, Stroman pitches the contact. Lucchese, Peterson, those guys pitch the contact. This isn't, you know, the 2015 Mets where they were striking everybody out. So you have a, a fair chunk of your projected start of, starting rotation. And I know it might not be both Lucchese and Peterson, but you have at least 40% of your starting rotation if not more, that pitches the contact, and you have a team where half your defensive players are below average. So, so run with it. Please let me know. I think I said Sam. I think we're going to go to you first on this one. Sam, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's interesting. Uh, this is Baseball Savant. This is a, a Major League Baseball page, correct? Yes. It has a, it's probably the most statistically rich page out there. I mean, fan graphs is great, but baseball savant, if you don't have, if you have the time, poke around on it. It has amazing stuff. Hmm. No, I certainly will. Uh, much appreciated. And no, it's, it, I mean, it, it certainly is going to be a challenge. Um, you know, I think weirdly enough though, that, uh, you know, and I guess you, you have to say like, how long can you wait for somebody to get to at least zero? At, at least when it comes to the stat that you were talking about. Um, my question is, um, my question becomes like, like with uh, Dominic Smith, like I, I expected the number to be worse than that. Um, so, you know, I stand kind of on the optimistic side of things that these guys are going to make their plays somehow, some way, whenever they get a chance. Well, I want to believe that, but the numbers don't point to that. And if you look at the fan graph stat of defensive runs saved, I mean, it's basically the same story. You know, what? I don't have the specific numbers in front of me, but what you see is exactly the same thing. It's Nimmo and Smith are way below league average their positions. Davis is as well, and so is Alonzo. So, um, you know, Mike, I don't know how – I think I know how you feel about defense, but um, you know, if you want to run with that, please do. I, I somehow, some way, you got to make the best of the situation, and, and like I said, somehow, some way, you need to reach a compromise. I'm willing to go with Brandon Nimmo as my starting center fielder. I'm not willing to overlook his over 800 OPS. Uh, defensively, he doesn't have the range. We know that, uh, and he makes some. Sometimes he makes bad decisions on his route towards the ball. We get that but we can replace him in late innings defensively with 
two of the acquisitions. Now, if you're confident in the offensive output from Michael Conforto and Pete Alonso and uh, Francisco Lindor, if you're confident with that, then perhaps you put J.D. Davis on the bench and you start Guillaume at third base. Tired is seeing Dom Smith and McNeil in left field. I want McNeil eliminated from that equation. He's an infielder. I only want to see him at third or second. So the biggest question mark left, Rich, is left field, and how are they going to negotiate that? Obviously, you know, everything's pointing to Dom Smith starting in left field. Uh, And perhaps he can give Alonzo a spell at first base. Uh, And, again, uh, I will bring up the potential of a platoon. But uh, you're going to have to... You're going to have to massage this. You can't, you're asking a manager to go one way, all offense, or the other, defense. I think you might be able to get the best of both worlds. But in order to do that, I would facilitate that by putting J.D. Davis on the bench and starting Guillaume. That shows up my infield. I can have J.D. Davis come off the bench. Uh, and perhaps he'll be featured in a trade somewhere down the line. We don't know. But uh, that's the way I would try to incorporate the best of both worlds, Rich. And, and can well, I just uh, put it out there, sure. though, before we move on, that uh, to be contrarian, Mike, um, that Jeff McNeil is probably the most of the players that we're talking about who have been uh, playing out of position. I think he's the most equipped of the ones playing out of position. So I'm not sure necessarily you want to take him out of that rotational platoon uh, only because he, he just was above and beyond what, you know, he just, Jeff McNeil seems to be uh, immediately adaptable to whatever position he gets put in. And he seems more than willing to do that, but I, I'm just tired of seeing it. Maybe it's just wearing thin on me personally. Down to, it comes down to a lot of things. If the DH becomes real for the National League, and I think it's it's probably 50-50 at this point for 2021, it's certainly not a dead issue. Um, and if it does become a real thing, it, it's kind of funny, I, I think, because I think it's karma for me, because I hate the DH with such a passion that my team would be the one to benefit the most because it sorts out a lot of these problems. What ends up happening is you, Alonzo's your DH, Smith moves to first base where he's better there and he's better than Alonzo there. Nimmo moves to left and you have Pilar, Amara, whoever in center field. And you help your defense that way. And yes, I know Pilar's defensive metrics in center weren't, weren't all that good in the past year or two, but he's a better defensive center fielder than Nimmo. I think that, that's, that goes without saying, and definitely Amora is as well. So it would help sort out a lot of those problems. That's one option, you did ZH. The other one is you go with the lineup that we're talking about and you just somehow swallow the bitter pill a bad defense. And the other one is something that they've alluded to. I don't remember who it was. I think it was, I'm not sure if it was, um, if it was Scott or Sandy who said, I think it was this week that it's nice to have a team of interchangeable parts, you know, where maybe one day McNeil plays third base and BR plays second and block based on the pitcher. And you could do that too. And, and they do have that, you know, VR is, is really a nice pickup. I, at least I think so. 
He can play many positions, including the outfield, and you can mix and match the pieces. The question is, is that a winning strategy? You could point to the 2016 Cubs. They had a lot of interchangeable parts. They, they move guys around all the time, and they won the World Series. So, so something that can be done, yes. Do you typically see that in a winning team where, you know, four different positions are musical chairs? I don't think it's common. I think it could work. I don't think it's common. And I think that, unless there's a DH, to me, that would be the Mets' path forward, would be to do the interchangeable parts thing. Because as far as I, I can tell, I don't think they could go forward with the defense like that. But a free-for-all, you know, whoever has a comment on that. I don't mind that, Rich. What I seek is defined roles. This way players know how to prepare and, and mentally prepare. Uh, what I don't like is when analytics overrule what you see on the field. Let's say, let's take any player, uh, Villar. He goes uh, four for eight in two consecutive games. Why sit him that third game? Because the metrics say that? No, that's what I don't want to see. So if you're going to do this interchangeable parts routine, go with the hot hand or you go with structure within a platoon or at least, you know, the matchups. This way players know what their role is and, and nothing comes as a surprise. The last thing players want is to show up at the ballpark after having three good games and saying, oh, man, I'm not in the lineup today. Why? Well, because the analytics say this, that, and the other. And I'll, I'll immediately jump into, you know, Guillaume, I think, is a big uh, – he, 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 if he can look as threatening as he did at the plate at any point, you want to get him in the lineup because of that defense as well. So, you know, if, if the DH is included, you're going to see Guillaume in the lineup more. Somehow, some way, it is going to be able to work that he is at second base. It, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see all the way all of this plays out. Yeah. Well, the thing about Kiorme, though, that I think you have to look at, you, you know, and I've come a long way on him. Um, I thought he was basically a one-dimensional player because, you know, he did, at least until 2020, he really didn't demonstrate any power, no speed, was not a good offensive player, and was – touted as a good defender and we saw little bits of it but in 2020 we saw a lot I mean he he I mean he, magician with the glove I think is it doesn't even say enough I mean the guy's amazing with the glove um and, and he he hit but but I'm looking at his BABIP right and again I don't try to drown in um in statistics I, I think you can you know you can do too much of it but batting average on balls in play for Guillaume, for Guillaume in 2020 was 463. That means, basically, half the time he put the ball in play, it was a hit. That's not sustainable. Mm. It's not. I mean, nobody's even close to that. You know, I hate to use the L word here, but he kind of got lucky last year offensively because you can't have a Babbitt of, of 463 when most guys, it's, you know, like, what, 320, 330? It, it's not sustainable. So you have to wonder if he can, if he can put something similar to what he did last year up offensively. 
I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm rooting for the guy, you know. I mean, he hit 333 last year. But, again, a lot of that was on balls that probably just found holes. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that's a sustainable strategy. But they have him. There's nothing wrong with having a guy like that who could play three infield positions. Nothing wrong at all. VR moves around the, the field. McNeil moves around the field. So, you know, Smith can play two positions. Um, so the one thing about these Mets, again, like we've been talking about, they have versatility. And if they want to go with this model of putting the best lineup out there for the day, okay. But I, unless something changes, I think that's going to be the model because, you know, I, I don't think Sandy and, and Zach Scott could sit in their offices and really think that putting this team out there every day with these defensive challenges is sustainable. But challenge me if you want to on that. Well, and that's why I say how much confidence are you going to have in Conforto, Alonzo, and Lindor as far as their offensive output because, you know, I'm trying to minimize three defensive liabilities and cut it down to two. And that's why I would opt to start Guillaume at third. And that would be a big move, Mike, because, you know, you have the big bat of J.D. Davis. He does have a big bat. I mean, he does. He didn't have as good of a year last year. He's had a 19, but it would be a bold move. Sam, how do you feel about starting Guillaume and Guillaume instead of um, instead of JD Davis at third? Um, it's it's tough, you know. Uh, I, especially now that Sandy Alderson's back there, you can see that he, he generally wants to get the most offense because he believes that that's going to be what eventually puts you over the top is having more runs than the opposition. Obviously, it's a never-ending debate: what is more important preventing runs or scoring runs, uh, you know, you, you need, you can't, especially deep into the playoffs, generally speaking, you are not uh, uh, just battering the opposition. Uh, you're going to have to win the game two to one or three to two a lot of times. Um, and, and these little defensive miscues are going to cost the game. Um Specifically with that, I mean, you know, I think what's in, what's what's interesting about J.D. Davis's 2020 is that, yes, it wasn't as good as his 2019, but you still saw enough there to see that he would that, – that it wasn't a fluke, 2019. Um, and I, I, I think that third base was the best position he's in. And I, I hear what you're saying. I, I just think that – you got to get J.D. Davis's bat in the lineup if he keeps performing the same way. And I don't think he's been a massive liability at third, especially with the arm that he has. Well, and that's the conversation, right? The conversation, we're, exact conversation we're having, which is, and you just, we just heard two different things. Mike said, give me Guillaume and the defense. You said, give me J.D. Davis and the offense, and we'll see you know, if we can minimize the defensive struggles. It's at this point, if I had to pick a concern that I have for the Mets going into 2020, it's not talent, 2021, I should say, it's not talent. It's there's a little too much. I want this. So I have to give up that. And I know every team goes through it, but the Mets, a team, you know, 96 wins projected, definitely a contender. Half of their positions, it's, well, if I want this, I have to give up that. I'm not sure that the other contending teams, the Braves, the Dodgers, the Yankees, so on and so forth, positions are having that same conversation. We can, you know, we, you know this guy does this, but doesn't really do that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, you know, do podcasts for the other teams, so I'm not sure. But I, I think it seems like a lot. 
if you're saying that you're a contender. And, you know, I think they, the Mets were the fifth team, I think, odds-wise for the World Series. Um, it just seems like a lot of positions to be in flux. Anyway, I think we've touched on that one. So let's move to, um, to a more fun topic, you know, and then we'll go back to on-the-field stuff. So social media. Um, this week, the Mets played even in social media. They lost one and gained one. Um, Pete Alonzo discontinued his social media. Uh, his Twitter, and I believe also his Instagram. And Steve Cohen came back to Twitter. And people talk about this stuff. You, you know, people talk about, well, you know, Alonzo, why, why did he leave Twitter and, and, uh, and Instagram? And Steve Cohen is back and what about all this? And it's not even a mention. People really get into this. Is it better for Pete Alonzo, you know, to be focused and all that stuff? Um, I don't know. To me, I, I really don't care who's on social media who's on what platform for how long it means absolutely nothing to me but i think we should talk about it because it means something to a lot of people because people talk about it so mike we'll start with you here what are your thoughts on that i mean like do you think it matters does it matter to you i don't know am i just an old curmudgeon here or doesn't care about social media take it away (laughs) all the above uh social media (laughs) is a difficult topic to tackle it really is uh, I think part of it is generational, how much uh, credit we put into it or do not. For some people, it's everything. For other people, it means very little to nothing. Uh, I don't blame Pete Alonso for, you know, folding up his account. Maybe he just wants to play baseball with a clear mind. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you can – wrongly wrap your mind into something that, as we say, Rich, is pure fantasy. It's unreal. It's not the real world. We are part of a very nice and good and friendly and respectful community on Twitter, the three of us, uh, and I enjoy everybody immensely. But as a ball player, I was, I, you know what, Rich, I have more respect for Pete Alonzo for folding up his account than I do, say, a player like uh, Todd Frazier or even Marcus Stroman who have an account, they want to promote themselves, they want to put themselves out there, but the second a little bit of criticism comes their way, they block people and block everyone. They block them by the hundreds, if not the thousands. Why bother? Why bother? If you're going to be out there and promote yourself as a brand and a product and an athlete and you want to engage in the fans, well, you know, have a little bit of thick skin and go forward with it. Uh, So in that respect, Rich, I have more respect for what Pete Alonso is doing uh, than perhaps other people in how they manage their Twitter accounts. Uh, you know, Twitter can be toxic. It really can. And if you let it affect you, sometimes that may carry out onto the field. Now, Pete Alonso also knows that he has a, a little bit of adversity headed his way. He needs to bounce back from last year's performance, especially coming off his rookie year. And we know, or he knows, that Dom Smith is right next to him, and Dom Smith has a very large following behind him. And a lot of people feel, as we just discussed, that Dom Smith is the better glove man at first base than Pete Alonso. You know, so if I'm Pete Alonso, I really don't want to have to put up with that, say, on a social media platform. For my coaches, yes. For my manager, yes. For my general manager, yes. Even from the fans in the first couple of rows, you know, at a ball game, you're going to hear that. 
that's part of the playing field. But social media, unreal. And if you let it bother you, if you if you immerse yourself in it, you know, it, it can really, uh, let's say, uh, alter your mood and, and uh, you know, put you in a bad frame of mind. So, touche to him. How about Steve Cohen coming back? Welcome back. He has nothing to lose. You know, uh, that controversy died down. And again, he has nothing to lose. He's the owner. He's the capitalist. He's the guy at the top of the food chain. And as an owner and, and all the above, he wants to remain engaged with his customer base, which are the New York Mets uh, fan base. And he's not here to make a buck. He said in his, uh, <laughs> in his business statement, in his business plan, you know, I'm here to promote winning and put a winner on the field for Met fans. So I, I still trying to hold true to his own mantra of staying connected with the fans. After all, he's got charities and he's going to need to be out there and he's going to need platforms uh, to reach out to the masses. So I never thought he was disappearing. And I'm sure he's well aware that there'll be another controversy down the line where, you know, Twitter will take that left turn and get personal and if not nasty. I'm sure he's prepared for that. But at the same time, I think he still wants to engage because of his mission statement. Now, if he was coming at us, you know, under a different pretense, different mindset, and different goal out of owning the Mets, perhaps not. You know, but I think he's having more fun than not. And I do believe that he's here for the greater good. He knows he has the wherewithal. And being a Met fan himself, he feels what we feel, and he's just trying to fit in. I don't think he's trying to alienate himself. I do believe that he's trying to fit in. Uh, people like the Wilpons, they would never fit to our, say, you know, friendly circles. Uh, it's like vinegar and oil. They just won't mix. But Steve Cohen, he's from the area, from Long Island, knows New York City, knows the fan base. So I think he's trying. Uh, whether he's successful remains to be seen. But I also give him credit for coming back. Sam, take it away. You know, I think when it comes to Pete Alonso, um, it seems as if the more social media gets the mirror turned upon itself, uh, the worse it, it has gone. Um, and I, I think you're going to start seeing this, uh, you know, because, Basically, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not even like there was any controversy. It's not like there was anything that premeditated in, in public view why Pete Alonso would leave. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it, it, it's just like basically more or less to me, the more you play this outrage game, the more you play this cancel game, you're going to lose some of the best we have. Um, and Pete Alonso was great on social media, you know? Uh, it, it's, it's a sad case. Uh, no matter whether or not, you know, like social media has helped us grow um, from a personal perspective uh, when it comes to this podcast and, like you said, Mike, the, the community that we have uh, 
you know, uh, been a part of in within this Mets Twitterverse. Um, but you know, it's every day within this Mets Twitterverse that I come across something that somebody's outraged about that like there's really they really don't need to be outraged about they don't need to be so uh vicious they don't need to be so negative about something that doesn't matter all that much you know uh, you know and 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 uh outside of of news and politics and how upsetting that can be for many people i'm talking about the sports stuff uh, you, you know even even within news and politics, people have been rather vicious uh, talking to each other. Uh, so you can imagine that when it doesn't even matter, when it has something to do with sports that really doesn't truly matter, other than the emotional connection we have, um, I just like people just need to check themselves. And and Mike, you know, going off of what you were saying about Steve Cohen that does seem to be what his intention is here, which is just to connect to the fans and have fun with the fans, which he's, he's been doing. And the last one that I saw had to do with that awesome orange and blue jacket that Francisco Lindor was wearing, uh, that throwback jacket. And, and Steve Cohen wanted one, um, which I'm sure that he could literally, you know, message somebody and have one in 30 seconds. Uh, but it, it it, that the fact that he he's asking about it, you know, just makes it like like he's just one of us. Like at some point, I've been that person coming across Mets jackets and being like, I want that jacket. Um, so he's very identifiable, and and that's why I'm excited. To, it, it it the more you see it, and now we actually have baseball coming up, the better the vibe is around the team, one way or another. So. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, the social media thing. And again, you know, if we don't check ourselves, we're going to continue to lose people like Pete Alonso that, that we're refreshing on there. I think those are all very good points about social media. And it's a nice segue. Oh, by the way, you're listening to the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Um, we are in the middle of a spring training discussion and we'll be getting to some other features shortly. Uh, but speaking of social media, a uh, very nice segue to we have a social media account, the Metsian podcast, and we received a couple of questions from our uh, faithful Twitter followers as well as listeners that we'd like to address at this point. So let's go to the first one, which is about the bullpen. Um, our friend Jeff Cohen basically says that bullpens are fickle year to year. And do we think the Mets have done enough to address the bullpen um, situation? And, and I think that is a, a very good question because, you know, the Mets, let's think about what they've done. They've added Trevor May. They've added Aaron Loop, a left-hander. And when we think about the bullpen, we have to bring Luke Casey into the conversation because I'm not sure that both he and Peterson will be in the rotation, especially after June when Noah comes back, if he hopefully comes back. So you can consider one of those to be a bullpen arm for at least half the season. Um, but by and large, they're going with a similar bullpen to last year, right? I mean, you know, the, the back end is the same at this point with Diaz and Familia. Um, the middle, you've got Batances. You'll have Lugo hopefully by about May. So the pieces are largely the same. They've added Trevor May like we've talked about. They've added Luke the lefty. 
uh, Lucchese and or Peterson. So, you know, there have been, there are a couple of new faces, more familiar faces. Let's answer Jeff Cohen's question. Mike, we'll start with you. Um, are you confident that they've done enough in the bullpen? I'm not. <laughs> Plain and simple, I'm not. Yes, they added Trevor May. And without even throwing a pitch, he might be their best reliever. Uh, you know, Edwin Diaz, we don't know what we're going to get. We don't know if we're going to get 2019 or the 2020 version. We shall see. But uh, I, I'm worried. You know, Dylan Batantis, he's lost four miles an hour on his fastball. He has to relearn his craft. I don't know if he's going to be able to do that in one spring training. Jerry's familiar. His walks are through the roof. We're used to him. We know what we're going to get from him unless there's a sudden turnaround in his career. You know, Jerry, Jerry Blevins, he had success, but that was in the past. What about now? He's a little bit up there in age. Uh, Seth Lugo, we know, is injured. Uh, Aaron Loop, I'm sure he's going to help. Uh, and Robert Gisellman, not for nothing, after his rookie season, he's been very ineffective. Very ineffective since his rookie season. So there's a lot of questions there, Rich. Uh, and I'm worried. I'm worried. You know, Miguel Castro, perhaps he will perform well. There are other names involved. You brought up perhaps uh, David Peterson or Lucchese. Well, those two are in a battle to be the lone left-hander in the starting rotation. And the loser in that battle just might wind up in the bullpen. Left-handers are valuable. But we also have to take into consideration how management is going to manipulate these gentlemen's options for the minor leagues. Peterson has the most. He's the freshest. He has three. Uh, Yamamoto, I believe, has two. And I think Lucchese is down to one. So that plays into this as well. Uh, Mike Montgomery, he's been mentioned. Tommy Hunter, he's been mentioned. So we'll just have to wait and see. Sam McWilliams is opening a lot of eyes. Hopefully he will be that, you know, the big surprise, the dark horse that comes out of spring training and heads north to Flushing with us come opening day. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things you have to cross your fingers about here, Rich. Uh, and, again, after Trevor May, I'm riddled with anxiety. We don't know which Diaz we're going to get. And, and, and the heart of the bullpen, really, because of our familiarity with them, is Batantis and Jerry's familiar. And their past performances do not speak well. So we're going to be relying on a, a couple of unknowns, i.e. Aaron Loop. Uh, he's unfamiliar to us. So we're just going to have to wait and see. I hope there's another move on the, on the horizon. Uh, but uh, the competition with Drew Smith and Jacob Barnes and maybe even Thomas Tabucky, hopefully that you know works in our favor and we go north with at least at least rich five strong relievers. I will throw this out there. Uh, starting pitching. Uh, very unscientifically, all I did was figure out how many innings per start our starting pitchers you know, average throughout a season. Jacob DeGrom, again, very unscientifically, simple division. Jacob DeGrom averages 6.1 innings per start over his career. Marcus Stroman averages an even six. Carrasco and Walker average 5.2 innings per start. And last year, David Peterson and Lucchese 
in his short career, they averaged 5.1 innings per start. You know, you do the math, and the Mets bullpen is going to be responsible for upwards of 3.2 innings per game. Said another way, 11 outs. So, you know, that's a tall order, Rich. It sure is. Um, the game has, you know, has changed, right? Um, bullpens are much more a big part of the game than they were back, you know, Mike, when we were kids. Uh, like you just said, 11 outs, 12 outs out of your bullpen on a nightly basis. You're not going anywhere in Major League Baseball without at least a decent bullpen. It doesn't have to be great necessarily, but it has to be good. And I thought you brought a couple of interesting points. You know, the Mets have – they haven't added a lot of names. This guy's a shoe in. You know, we've got a new guy here, a new guy here, a new guy here. Yes, you have Trevor May. Luke probably has to be there because he's a left-hander. But they've also accumulated some names that you mentioned. Tommy Hunter. There's a guy they went after hard two years ago. Now he's in the organization. Montgomery, a lot of major league experience there. So, and Shane Green is still out there. Now I know he's been, you know, kicking around since his days with the Yankees, but um, but he's still out there. A guy with major league experience. They passed on Trevor Rosenthal, or maybe I should say Rosenthal passed on him on them because he wanted to close. So, you know, they've accumulated Sam. They've accumulated names that could slot in here and there but they haven't overhauled the bullpen. So how do you feel about that? I'll turn it around on you, Rich, and ask you this. Do you think that because they have enough confidence in the likes of Miguel Castro, Drew Smith, Jacob Barnes, Jerry Blevins, and or Sandic Williams, that the rumors that they're trying to move Familia and Batances for money purposes uh, hold true and could come to fruition before spring training is over? I think if they could find takers for those guys, they would gladly do it. If they get half the salary off the books, it gives them a little more wiggle room in the middle of the season if they want to add. And plus those guys just haven't been that effective. And you have, you have reason to be very concerned about the Kansas where he's not throwing hard still. So I think to answer your question, they definitely would like to move them for two reasons, probably primarily for some salary relief, but also because they just haven't been very effective. Yeah, um, and when looking at it, you know, I have they done enough with the bullpen? Um, I think that Familia and Batances are the number one crux of the situation. Um, how they perform and, and and what they give the Mets right now determines whether or not, you know, anything that they did around them uh, is good. Now, Sam McWilliams is interesting. I, I read a I mean, this this guy is basically like, um, oh Jesus! I'm totally spacing on who is who is the April Fool's joke once upon a time. What was his name again? Sid Finch. Sid. Sam McWilliams sounds like Sid Finch coming to fruition in somehow, some way. That that like everybody's writing about him, but he's never had a a real career. Sam McWilliams right now is is in some fashion. The R.A. Dickey of, of the you know, he's not a knuckle knuckleballer, but he's kind of like the R.A. Dickey uh, and hopefully not the Colin Calgill of this spring training, uh, that, that it turns out to be better than what Colin Calgill, after uh, being a flash in the pan at the beginning of the season, completely trailed off very, very quickly. 
Um, I, I, I'm interested. I mean, I, I forget exactly what the, the deal was, and maybe Rich or, or Mike, you guys might remember that article that I'm talking about. It was either Verducci or Rosenthal. Um, and it had to do with just this one particular pitch, and it might be like a slurve that he picked up. I, and, and before I, I blabber about something that I don't know, and I guess I'll just have to look him up, um, do, what do you guys remember about that? I, I, I believe, Rich, weren't you the one who brought up the article? Yes. So um, can you, yeah, refresh my memory. Oof, I need somebody to refresh my memory at this point. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, you can continue with it. On, on the, I'll see what comes to my mind, but please continue. No, it's it's just it, – it, I guess I'm just going off on a Sam McWilliams rant, but I, I think that, you know, I, if I remember correctly, Miguel Castro got a little time at the end there of 2020, and, and he looked like uh, very promising, and, and I forget where, where they got him. And I obviously have many, many different things to look up when it comes to this bullpen. Um, Baltimore. But I, I remember Drew Smith having a lot of success. Uh, but Mike is right about Robert Gazelman. You know, he's just – he is not followed in Seth Lugo's path and held to the elite status that he attained in 2016 – in 2016, excuse me. Um, so – it again, you are left in many places with some unknowns. I, I, I have faith that Trevor May is going to perform well, and I actually do have faith based off of what I read about Aaron Loop that this is actually a, a great pickup. Um, but it's the Familias, the Diaz's, the Batantises that are, are where you know the success is going to rest on, and it, you know that that is, I think it's both not necessarily Cohen or uh, Alderson's fault. And in fact, especially with Edwin Diaz, you know, he'd love to have that one back and wasn't the one who did it. So I, I, did they do enough? Probably not, but is it going to be their fault for not doing it? I, I don't necessarily, I think that based off of the names that I see in front of me, I am concerned about Diaz, who can literally look like one of the greatest pitchers of all time, followed by a home run. Uh, I, I'm I'm certainly concerned about him, um, but I not to the point that like I'm over panicking that this could be. Well, I think we did it either last podcast or a couple times ago that this could be another 1992. You know, and knock on wood, because I keep repeating it. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, that's on the bullpen, and I think Jeff Cohen said it well. Bullpens are fickle. The Mets bullpen will be fickle this year. I think there are a lot of unknowns. There are some bodies. Hopefully they can sort it out. Hopefully, um, if they keep a Hunter and a Montgomery, just saying arbitrarily, and Barnes you know, in the minor leagues, of course, a Hunter and, and Montgomery would have to agree to that, um, then they'll have some interchangeable parts they could bring back and forth, which is kind of the way bullpens work, especially around the periphery of them. Uh, but that might be what we're looking at. And um, when do you know you did enough in your bullpen? It's the one area of a baseball team that I don't think anybody ever knows the answer to that question. So let's move to our next Twitter question. And, Mike, I'll start with you on this one. It comes from our friend Jeff Cohn, who basically asks uh, Lucchese or Peterson. Interesting question. As I look at that, 
you know, Lucchese, um, eight and nine in 2018, and I know record for starting pitcher isn't the best metric, but 10 and 10 and 19, uh, very limited action last year, 0 and 1. So you're looking at a guy with a career ERA of 4.21. And when I think about it, I mean, to me, I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't see why David Peterson is even being questioned. I mean, the kid looked fantastic last year, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, 344 ERA, 6-2 record in his rookie season, pitches the contact, keeps the ball over the plate. Um, you know, ERA plus, which is kind of a neat statistic of 123, that puts him, you know, ahead of league average. So, um, so I mean, I don't see that Peterson should have anything to worry about unless he has a horrible spring and Lucchese has a great spring. I think it's Peterson's job to lose. Uh, but Max asked the question, so let's answer it. Mike, how do you see it? I'm with you. I'm hoping David Peterson can pick up where he left off last season. I'm in his corner. He's the one who's familiar to us. He had a good rookie season. And you know what, Rich? He still qualifies uh, as a rookie by one-third of an inning. He pitched 49.2 innings last year, and I think the cutoff is 50 innings pitched. How do you like that one? So hopefully, How about that? You know, well, that is, speaking, question real quick. Question real quick. Is that the same number that they're going to hold? Did did that number get readjusted because of 2020? Uh, who knows? I don't know. You know, so I'm just having fun with that stat for the moment. Uh, but again, I hope he can pick up where he left off. Lucchesi, you know, he's the unknown. He got optioned down last year by the Pirates, uh, by the Padres. Otherwise, as you said, Rich, he has those two seasons. Now, uh, he has a body of work uh, of almost 300 innings pitched. And if we're talking about a 4.08 ERA as a rookie and a 4.18 ERA in his sophomore season, if that's our start point, well, then maybe, you know, Jeremy Hefner can work with this. He projects as a power pitcher. His strikeouts are up, but he's got to get his walks down. That's a must, and that's where his problem lies. But, you know, we're talking a very young pitcher, very limited experience in the major leagues. So somebody who comes away with, you know, a 1.2 and change whip over his first two seasons, if that's what we're working with and that's what we're looking to improve upon, well, then that's a good acquisition considering and only considering the pitchers that we have ahead of him. So we're talking about the end of the rotation. Uh, Either way, Lucchese and Peterson are battling to be the lone left-hander in the starting rotation. May the better man win. Rich, I'm with you. I'm in Peterson's corner. Uh, he proved himself very effective in ERA below four. A lot of good metrics on his side. Uh, his fifth was a little bit up and things of that nature. His bait bit, but still, he's the one who's known to us. We always root for those homegrown guys. Uh, but Lucchese, don't count them out because if that's where we're starting with, and, you know, we can get improvement, well, then we've, we've acquired a, a good, young, strong pitcher. Sam, your thoughts, Lucchese or Peterson? Well, in terms of the Peterson thing, I can't hunt it down quick enough, but uh, this is something that I'd love to ask. I'm sure Tim Healy of Newsday would know, uh, our friend Tim Healy, if we could ever uh, get him back on next time we get him back on. Um, but I, I would have to go with what you guys were saying about Peterson. I mean, he, he, you know, I, I used the word poise last week when it came to Peterson and I was very impressed with his poise. Uh, I, I thought 
you know, one way or another, regardless of what Lucchese could do, um, and it's going to be interesting to see the way he can pitch for us. I think that Peterson has shown, has gone above and beyond showing me that he can be a major league pitcher and that he can be an elite major league pitcher eventually. Um, Right now, I think that he does uh, a trend in the fourth or fifth uh, uh, spot, but you never know how he can bounce off of 2020 uh, and add to it and continue to improve. So I have to say for sure, Peterson, I'm definitely in his corner, Um, but I'm excited to see uh, now that they, they have a kid that, you know, that could potentially uh, turn his career around in, in, uh, you know, a more positive fashion than, you know, because like you said, he, he got sent down last year. uh, So it would be nice to see him bounce back from that. Yeah, I I agree. I I think unless Peterson absolutely tanks in spring training and the Casey blows out of the water, I think it's Peterson's job and and which isn't a bad thing, right? You know, you, I'm not really comfortable having only one lefty in the bullpen, whether the second lefty, should they choose to go that way? And I hope they do is Montgomery or Lucchese or whatever it might be. Um, they have options. And so that, that's a good thing. And so we want to thank both Jeff Cohen and Max Cohn for sending in those questions. We appreciate it guys. So guys, I have a, a quick question for you that, that might be a bit out of left field, but I just have to say it. So we've talked about our concerns with the Mets, right? Defense, we agreed that, you know, that the the pieces are nice, but we have concerns about when you put them together that the defense can be a liability. We talked about the bullpen, and um, and that depends where you come down on that, but it's not an area that's really comfortable. Let me ask you this, just quick comment. I'm also concerned about the manager's chair. Um, We haven't talked about Luis Rojas a lot, but – I was not impressed last year. It just seemed like the team was flat a lot of the time. They were horrible fundamentally. That was noted across the board. How much of that does the manager have to own? I don't know. But it wasn't like this team that played, you know, if you think about the second half of 2019 under Mickey, um, the team was inspired. They were hustling. They were energetic, all those things. Yeah, of course, it was a weird year, no fans and all that. I don't know. I'm just not terribly confident in Luis Rojas. It's more of an intangible to me. I can't put my finger on a specific thing. Sam, what are your thoughts? Are you good with Rojas leading the ship this year? Yeah, I'm good with Rojas leading the ship this year. Uh, I I was really impressed. I I, I thought that they had a little bit more energy on the bases with Rojas. Um, And unfortunately with with, with Mickey, some of those big losses where they, they had like a 10-4 lead and then would lose 11-10, to 10, they, they just those specifically kept piling up and piling up. And I, I just, again, when it comes to what this team could be and has been and, and should be, I think that it all stems, you know, all comes down to the will fund. Um, and now we have to see what this could possibly be going forward. Um, and, and yes, that's going to mean that Rojas is going to have a big magnifying glass on his performance, for sure. Uh, but I'm certainly I, I don't I don't think there was anything that made me scream that they they're in that this was completely the wrong guy to choose. And I I still think he's got that 
that baseball acumen that a lot of people don't have coming from the Aloof family. So I, I'm certainly looking forward to him having better organizational footing uh, to fall back on. Mike, your thoughts on Luis Rojas. Is it a concern, a neutral, or a positive to you? Oh, I, I guess I'm, I'm neutral. You know what I always say, Rich? Players' performance render managers insignificant. If they perform well, managers look great. Think about the conversation we'd be having right now had the Mets hit better with running runners in scoring position last season because that was a disaster. So, and let's also remember under what pretense Luis Rojas was hired. Uh, I'm perfectly content moving forward with Luis Rojas for the moment, but, you know, it's a pass or fail job. So, you know, it's up to him. I have no compunction replacing him, but I'll be fair. And he, he's a resume guy. He deserves the shot. Uh, he's done everything. He's checked all the boxes needed to get to this point. So let him move forward. This will be the full season to judge him by. I'm willing to give just about everyone a pass for 2020. So let's see what happens. You know, And if it works out, we keep with it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it breaks down, we fix it. Well said. All right, guys, uh, before we move to 1973, and I do think we should spend a couple minutes on that, given that it was uh, the Mets' second pennant and second World Series parents. Before we get there, um, we're going to wind the clock back to get there, but we're going to stop the clock just a little shy of 1973. Uh, Mike, this one might be more for you than Sam, but Sam, of course, you're welcome to comment on it. So I, I wrote a piece for Rising Apple this, that published today. Um, on this date, February 28, 1975, the Mets obtained Dave Kingman from the San Francisco Giants. Um, and so, Mike, Kingman is a guy that when you say his name to Mets fans who were around back then, you get a reaction. It's either a strong negative one or a strong positive one. Some people loved the tape measure home runs. Some people thought it was maddening to watch the guy play the game. Um, so, um, so, with that said, oh, did I say I, – I'm sorry. I wrote it for Metsmerize. And if I said – I just got a note that I said Rising Apple. I wrote it for Metsmerize online. I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, Joe. Um, anyway, so um, they got Dave Kingman, 1975, uh, February 28th. Mike, what's your thought on, on Dave Kingman? When you think about Dave Kingman, just, just talk to me about what, what comes to mind. I'm smiling. Uh, I did catch that article, and I did comment your article on Metsmerized Online. I will go to my grave, Rich, saying that, you know, were it not for Dave Kingman injuring his thumb, the Mets had a legitimate chance at winning the division title. I believe he was out from uh, like July 20th through August 28th. In his absence, the Mets were 14 and 16. In the months of July and August, the Mets were 27 and 27. And then in September, the Mets surged to a 20 and 9 record for the month. And we know how many home runs Dave Kingman hit. He might have very easily eclipsed 50 home runs in 1976. I will go to my grave believing that, Rich. 
that had he not gotten hurt, uh, a division title was possible, possible. Because remember, in those days, you played uh, within your division 18 times and you played the West 12 times. So the Phillies record would have been, you know, reduced somewhat by Mets victories. And that would have made it a very interesting race. But as a Met fan, how could you not be a fan of Kong, Sky King, Dave Kingman? You know, uh, he was our, how do you say, he was our, he was our, Sam, he was our mensch, right? He was our guy when it, when it came to, uh, you know, banter with, with, with Yankee fans. Well, we had Tom Seaver and we had Dave Kingman, you know. So he was our guy. And what can I say? He'll be an all-time favorite Met regardless of his strikeouts. Sam, I know it was before your time. Your thoughts on Dave Kingman? Uh, Dave Kingman is just one of those asshole folklore heroes that it's (laughs) like you, 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 it sounds like you have a couple Dave Kingmans that, that comes, you know, that the stories get passed down from generation to generation. For me, having been born in 1985, um, it, I can really only fall on the literary sense as well as the next yearbooks. The next yearbooks, um, and I, I think it was, so like there, there's one where he's like talking to a group of children and he's looking affable and he's looking uh, uh, like he can, you know, not make a child cry. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I think it was 19, the 1975 Mets yearbook, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there's people out there that could correct me if I'm wrong. One of which I believe has a story about Dave Kigman in the negative fashion. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it, uh, in Faith and Fear and Flushing by Greg Prince, he talks of a story where uh, I, I, I forget who was throwing the ball back, but like Dave Kingman saw a ball that he was supposed to autograph fall into mud and just look at it and laugh and move on. Um, and so there's also those stories. Uh, I, I think he was also very, aggra- you know, abrasive with the, the press. Uh, he, he could have his dark side. And I think that's where it kind of is. Dave Kingman is exactly the type of person that he was as a ball player, which is, you know, either the home runs that make you just glee with excitement, or he's just going to strike out endlessly in front of you. Uh, <laughs> that That's what I like about Kingman. And that's why I do like his place within Mets war, because, like you said, I mean, imagine like you're talking about the the debates with the Yankee fans in the 70s, Mike. Imagine had a Met broken Roger Maris's record in 1976. That that would have been something. But again, it wasn't meant to be because that's just the Met story of, of how it's supposed to go when it comes to the debate against the Yankees. So we'll see if we can try to change some of those narratives going forward in a new era. You know, it's interesting about Kingman, Mike. I don't know if you, uh, for some reason this sticks out in my mind. In 77, before he was traded, um, 
he was not doing well, of course. You know, he was he was tailing off as a Met. He had his best year actually, nineteen seventy nine with the Cubs, but he he was really not doing well. And I remember there was a pro- Mets were playing the Astros, and there was a promotion going on at the Astrodome. That if Kingman struck out, time of day had an even digit, you know, like eight twelve, eight fourteen. Everybody got a free something. I don't remember what it was, um, a free soda, a free hot dog. It was a promotion at the Astrodome, and I remember he would be up there with two strikes on him, and the crowd was going crazy, hoping that he would strike <laughs> out when the clock was at an even digit. That's how bad it had gotten. Um, but anyway, yeah, Kingman was a polarizing figure. You know, um, you know, Mike, you take the perspective of home runs, excitement, and that certainly was there because he could hit some bombs. Other people say he wasn't a complete player, which, you know, he probably wasn't if you look at his numbers. But anyway, interesting comment. I wanted to throw that in. And now we'll wind the clock back a little bit farther, and we'll go all the way back to 1973. Uh, it's interesting. Our friend Anna Bryce, who's often on the podcast, commented on, on the tweet from the account, from the, the uh, Metzian podcast account, saying that um, 1973 was her first, you know, quote-unquote year with the Mets. Um, it was the first year that I was into it. You know, like I knew the Mets were before that, but I actually followed them in 1973. And it was so exciting. Um, so there's so much to talk about. You know, you could talk about Tug McGraw with You Gotta Believe. You could talk about um, last place, August 31st, winning the division in Chicago a month and a day later on October 1st. Um, you could talk about that. You could talk about upsetting the, the uh, big red machine in the NLCS. You could talk about the fight, Pete Rose, Buddy Harrelson. So much. It was such a great year for the Mets. You know, coming off of their world championship in 69, they had slipped back in you know, the early 70s. Certainly they were competitive. But in 73, they were dead and buried and, and just rose from the ashes in, in an incredible run that just – they had a 3-2 lead in the World Series going back to Oakland. They were unable to win a game there and ended up losing the World Series. So there's so much to talk about. Sam, we'll go to you first on this one. Obviously, it was 12 years before you were born. But from what you have heard about the 73 Mets, any particular players, you know, what do you want to say? Well – you know, just looking at it, uh, Rusty stands out, of course. Uh, Rusty wasn't there in 1969, but he will always be remembered as part of the 1973 crew. Um, I, I think it also stands out that the it, it it's fitting to me within the narrative of the Mets that the year they lose the World Series is still the year that the tagline takes hold that the you gotta believe tagline takes hold because they took it you know they had a lead at the end of that world series of course um and and unfortunately couldn't hold uh for reasons we will discuss on this podcast um and you know tug mcgraw of course is is you know and, and he did take it with him to the phillies for sure uh but it's Still, I think most people understand, even if I think that that's attributed to the 1980 Phillies for fans of that team, but even they would acknowledge that a Mets uh, a tagline, um, and, and that's a big part of 1973. Uh, the fight against Pete Rose, Buddy Harrelson, 
that that is something that I'll remember from the images. And of course, uh, Willie Mays throwing his arms up because uh, the call at home plate uh, was out, even though the runner was safe um, in the World Series. Uh, so those are some things that I think about when I think about the 1973 New York Mets. Thank Yoke. you, Sam. Okay. Go ahead, Sam. No, I just said and Yogi. Oh, of course, Yogi. I mean, um, I remember, you know, the, the the player talking about at the plate with Willie Mays throwing his arms up, that was Buddy Harrelson trying to score on a short uh, sacrifice. So I would have been a sacrifice fly by Felix Leon. And um, if you watch that play, it was a total whiff by the catcher, who I believe was Fossey. Might have been Gene Tennis. I don't remember which one. Um, total whiff, missed him. He should have scored. But the Mets won the game. They ended up winning that game in um, in extra innings. There's a whole thing with Mike Andrews, you know, who was quote unquote fired by um, by Charlie Finley for a couple of errors in that second game in extra innings. There's so much went on. Uh, Mike, if you remember, the World Series played at Shea. It was the second, I believe, World Series played at night in history, and it was so darn cold. Um, I remember watching. Of course, the game started early enough for those those little ones back then. Started much earlier, and it was just ridiculous i think one night one game was in the 30s and Bowie kuhn was sitting there with a sport coat on refusing to acknowledge <laughs> how cold it was um, <laughs> so remember that um so mike yeah. you were there like i so talk to me 73 uh what uh, are your memories you know it's 1973 you mentioned yogi gill's no longer with us tommy agee wasn't on the team nolan ryan wasn't on the team uh but 1973 starts my education this is when i start attending games and what I mean by my education is my aunt uh, and my education about Willie Mays begins now and, 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 you know, winter leagues and his Negro leagues career. And now with the Mets and she filled me in about everything about the giants. She absolutely loved Willie Mays. And, you know, I'm, this is the way I feel rich. You know, I feel so fortunate. We, both of us were too young to see 1969, but I'm so grateful to have seen these guys from 73. I'm so grateful to have seen A.G. Garrett, uh, Seaver, Kuzman, and McGraw from the 69 guys. But, you know, uh, guys like John Milner and Felix Mion and John Matlick and, of course, Rusty Staub, when you're that, they're heroes. They're absolute heroes, and they trump any modern-day player. That's the way I feel. Uh, the more the modern game pisses me off, the deeper I delve into its past, and Mets past for that matter. And, and uh, I'm so grateful to have seen these guys. They played in 69, but, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for the recollections I have of 73 when it really started for me. I'm grateful for the education that my aunt and my uncles gave me because they're the ones who really kept me abreast day to day, you know. Uh, by 74, I have full recollect, recollection. But uh, two more things about 73. You know, the National League East didn't have that one team that stepped up. Rich, if you remember in 1972, the Pirates won the division with a 96-59 and 59 record. But that was also with Roberto Clemente. He was gone in 1973. So, you know, uh, no one team really stepped up in 1973. And as we know, the Mets surged. It wasn't because these teams didn't have talent. It was just one of those things. And I look back at that lineup, and, 
I look back at that Pete, and yes, Sam, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just going off of Roberto Clemente, Gil Hodges, and I believe Jackie Robinson as well, um, 1973 was a, was a very bittersweet year for baseball overall. You know, you had a lot of, of hurt coming out of 1972. Yeah. And, and lastly, Rich, I don't know how you feel about this, but the 1974 Mets yearbook, with the pennant on the cover from 1973, <laughs> is one of my all-time yearbooks. Agreed. Totally agree. Up until about 1981, two somewhere in there. Remember, Mike, they about the revised edition of Middle of Season. You had to get that one, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that 1974 yearbook with the 1973 National League pennant yeah. on it, Jeez. to me, that's one of my all-time favorites, if not one of my – Maybe one of my top two. But uh, I'm so grateful for those guys. John Milner is a hero to me. I loved him so much. Kuzman, Rusty Staub, and, and McGraw, those two guys are gods to me. And, and Rich, you also wrote an article for Metsmerized about uh, Gary Carter and the patch. And, you know, within the comments, everyone chimes in about who should have their number retired. Well, Tug McGraw is my personal uh, favorite to have his number retired. He was part of two National League championships, uh, one World Series championship. He was such an integral part to the team. We know how he stacked up against the competition. Uh, and, you know, his unfortunate passing, I think, you know, just crystallizes the importance of his life in Metsville. And that's why I'm a proponent of having his number retired. You know what? It's hard to disagree. Become the Yankees. They didn't say it quite like that, but retire every number under under the you know under the sun. And I agree with that. But take guys like Tug, who was so such a, a loved player and so instrumental in that pennant. Um, and then I'm a huge you know Mike. You, you're speaking to the choir here, preaching the choir about Rusty Staub. Why his number isn't retired, and or a statue or something for this guy who did so much on the field for them and even more off the field with all of his, uh, you know, the, the uh, police and fire fund and, and all the charitable work he did just a good human. Um, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get why there's not something acknowledging rusty somewhere. If you don't want to retire the number, Oh, fine, but do something for this guy, please. And Milner yeah. was one of my heroes too. I mean, everything you said, everything you said, um, Seaver going I, out to touch. Sure. Jump in. I want to touch on Felix Mian, uh, one of the greatest mustaches in the history of this team. Uh, besides that, he could, you know, turn a double play like nobody else. I, I love that era. You know, Felix Mian becomes part of that 70s era that even though they end up just completely uh, snowballing down the hill uh, into negativity, um, I, I'm, I'm just really thankful that you have uh, a player like Felix Mion starting in 1973 uh, and also getting entangled with those later teams. Um, looking at the yearbook, it, it is quite possibly the best yearbook that they have. Um, you know, you can go through all of them, and it's hard-pressed to find a better one. And 
apparently, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a great Shapers advertisement on the back. Ah. You guys remember you anything about that? Nothing other than to say it was a uh, obviously a sponsor that wrangled as well. Uh, or I guess uh, wrangled probably after. Yeah. Number one in New York, Schaefer. When you're having more than one. <laughs> I know the jingle. <laughs> oh, one beer to have, have when you're having more than one. There you go. You know that just proves how powerful marketing is. <laughs> there you go, and you know. Just quickly, because we have to wrap it up, um, with Rheingold, it came back about five, no, maybe more like eight years ago. It was back for like uh, six months, and I found a place around here that had it, and I just went out and bought it because I had to have it. Because I, I was too young to drink beer when Rheingold was a, you know, a thing with the Mets, and somebody told me Rheingold beer is available at this certain place. And I went and got it, and, I, and I'm sitting there drinking a Rheingold, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is the beer that the Mets advertised. Anyway, just a personal note there. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know, it's the little stuff. Hey, here's one last little thing on 73. That ball on the wall play, um, I remember watching that on the news the next night, you know, obviously, because it happened at night. Uh, but I remember watching it on the news and just being fascinated by it. And the one thing that people don't remember is that Wayne Garrett threw that ball to Hodges. Garrett was playing shortstop, but he had been taken out of the game, maybe for a pinch hit or something. But Garrett went out to get the cutoff throw, and he had played a little shortstop with the Mets. Obviously, it wasn't his primary position. And he's the one who got it from, from Jones, and, and Garrett fired that strike to Hodges, who got, um, I think it was Richie Zisk at the plate. Uh, or maybe Zisk hit it. I forget who they got at the plate. But anyway, ball in the wall play. Um, all right, gentlemen, it's been a blast talking spring training and, uh, and what the Mets, where the Mets are, where, what our concerns are, what our hopes are. Uh, it's been a hell of a lot of fun for me talking about 1973. We have reached the last little section of the Metsian podcast. I'd like to thank Mike LaColent and Sam Maxwell, my, my co-conspirators in the Metsian podcast. And it's at this point that we do our last word. So let me go to Mike first for the last word for this very special and interesting edition of the Metsian podcast. What's your last word tonight, Mike? Let the games begin. The break, the grapefruit league is here. Uh, let's go Mets. You know, let's see how this turns out. Let's see what kind of roster we're going to bring into opening day. You can't, you know, you can't build Rome in a day. And we're just over the hundred day mark of Cohen's ownership. Still a lot to do. So have patience. Let's enjoy the season and hope for the best. Sam Maxwell, the Grand Poobah, the CEO of Podcasting Operations. <laughs> what is your last word tonight? Grand Poobah always sounds like that guy's got to be, like, really chubby at the front of the parade. But, but anyway, the, I, I, my last word is shout-out to number 73, the only one I really want to talk about in the uniform number, Kenny Rogers. Uh, the rest of them, I promise, to give uh, more credence to when we get to episode 173. Take it away. Yeah, we yeah, we didn't touch on Kenny, but I think maybe some Mets fans would say that was a good thing, right? It's bad memory. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, all right, with that said, we'd like to thank all of you, our faithful listeners and people who leave us comments people on Twitter, people who retweet our stuff and comment. We really appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening. 
it's been a blast tonight, and um, we have to take this out. And the only way to go is, is to the main man himself for the only way we know how to take out the Metsian podcast at the end of an episode. So, Sam, take it away. Hope springs eternal, and let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Mike. Good night, let's everybody. Go Mets. Good night, guys. Good night, everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.